Welcome to Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, activists, authors, theologians, philosophers, scholars, political pundits, and a host of others about their world, their work, and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a conversation that's free-flowing, entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, oftentimes enlightening and informative, and above all else, deeply human. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Zena Hitz. In an overloaded, superficial technological world in which almost everything and everybody is judged by its usefulness, where can we turn for escape, lasting pleasure, contemplation, or connection to others? While many forms of leisure meet these needs, few experiences are so fulfilling as the inner life, whether that of a bookworm, an amateur astronomer, a bird watcher, or someone who takes a deep interest in one of countless other subjects. Drawing on inspiring examples from Socrates and Augustine to Malcolm X and Elena Ferrante, and from films to Hitz's own experiences as someone who walked away from elite university life in search of greater fulfillment, lost in thought, is a passionate and timely reminder that a rich life is a life rich in thought. It's a great book. We had a great conversation about it. I give you Zena Hitz. Zena, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here, Scott. You have, your most recent book is brand new, actually, 2020, is Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life. That's right. I, love, I love the prologue, which is how washing dishes restored my intellectual <laughs> life. And it's, inter- it's interesting that I, cause you talk about midway through your journey in life. And I think of like, oftentimes, uh, you know, I think of Dante, right. And the, the, the way the divine comedy just starts, he's like, Oh man, he's kind of in this midlife crisis. And he's like, Oh man, I got lost in the woods. Uh, <laughs> right. And I mean, and that's kind of like, it, 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 yeah. you, you, it seems like that kind of happened to you, right. Your family yeah. was right. They sent you to St. John's college. You didn't have any particular religious affiliation. That's right. You were kind of, and, and you seem kind of lost in the woods a little bit and, and spending time in a religious community, it, it really seemed to knit together and make sense of some things that you were lacking and longing your whole intellectual, emotional life. That's right. I mean, I, I think so. I mean, if we're at the beginning of the inferno, you know, he's, he's in the woods and there's uh, wild carnivorous animals who are coming to get him. Right. So it's, there's, you know, it's there's a threat of being devoured by animals. I I think that you know I ha- I was struggling with I would call them inner demons. I don't think that's an exaggeration. Uh, I really uh, had gotten really deeply preoccupied with um, the status aspects of my profession with being an academic, um, and it was even though I could recognize it in some sense intellectually, it was very hard for me to break free of it. So I was um, living this life of a research academic and, uh, you know, writing articles and teaching classes. And in every classroom, as any teacher will tell you, there's people who learn and are excited. But it just started to feel uh, empty and um, and I couldn't understand why I was doing it anymore. And I wanted uh, a more human mode of life, like a richer um more communal, uh, more in touch way of being. And I just couldn't figure out how to do that and be intellectual. Um, so, uh, the religious community was kind of a, um, dramatic move where I basically deprived myself of everything but my academic life and lived as a human being <laughs> for a time. 
and through that figured out, I, I think, a better way of um, being an intellectual than I had been living before. Yeah, I mean, you seem. It seems that when you went to St. John's, right, which is which is where you are now, right? That's right. I went back to. Uh, I went back to my old undergrad institution to teach. That's right. It sounds like that was a place that was really fulfilling, and as an undergrad, that's right. And you know, it's kind of you're reading a lot of the great books. It's it's this sort of non pragmatic approach to education, right? You kind of it, it's 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 you know you're like in a salon or like in 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 the Lyceum or whatever. You know, it, it's this. And yet, and then you contrast that with academic life, where where it seems like what brought you into academic life wasn't treasured there; it was taken for granted, right? And, and now all of a sudden you're in just like, did you publish there? Are you are you getting your committee chairmanship or what, how, did you get to give the paper at this conference? And, and it winds up being this whole political kind of thing, right? Right. Well, it's and it's complicated because I was never so it was never so bad that it was only the status-oriented things, you know, only the publications and the conferences and who you knew and who was this and who was this many ticks up the scale of prestige and all this kind of thing. There was always some real intellectual content going on. And there were always, the the people I knew always had serious intellectual interests. But these things get mixed together and you, you, you can't really tell that what's taken over um, is is not the thing that you really cared about to begin with, but this other thing, which is kind of running like a hamster in some wheel deep in your soul that uh, you can't, you somehow can't break free of without some dramatic uh, changes. What did your colleagues say when you were like, "Hey, I'm going to go, uh, you know, live in a religious community"? <laughs> you know, it was funny. I um. I, of course, was terrified. I was really dreading that more than anything, was telling people what I was doing. And I thought everyone would think I was totally insane. I mean, I was right. I was about to go for tenure. I would have certainly got it. I was doing very well. I probably could have moved on to a better job pretty quickly. Um, And I, you know, I was in the middle of a project that was really interesting and lots of people liked Um, I thought people would think I was crazy, but what was funny was, so at that point in my life, I'd been a Catholic for something like, uh, five years. Uh, I'm a convert. And, uh, so I had this mix of friends, the newer Catholic friends and the older secular friends. And my colleagues were all secular. I taught at secular universities and the, the, the Catholics were very skeptical and really were concerned that I was ruining my uh, training, like wasting my education and my, uh, my talents. And that my secular friends were somehow more sympathetic. Uh, and I, I've never understood that, but it was true that they, like, they, they somehow understood that, that there might be a reason for um, trying to break free from uh, living a normal life and trying to get down to something fundamental. So I was actually shocked. I was shocked on both ends. I was shocked when I left at how, in a way, sympathetic people were. And I was also shocked at um, when I came back, how nonplussed people were. They were happy to see me again. And, you know, I'd been gone for a few years. And <laughs> so I, I think uh, it, it was interesting. It's something that's helped me. And it's helped me also with um, the book and things connected to the book. I think a lot of uh, very religious people like myself have a fear of communicating about it 
um, to other people, people who might not be sympathetic, fear of being rejected, fear of being criticized, fear of being demeaned as stupid. And in fact, what I found over and over again is how interested people are in it um, and uh, how curious they are and how much they want to talk about it. So uh, that, that's that been my experience. I, it, was ve- it, was, it was very strange. I got very little resistance um, from the academic world. Yeah. I wonder if that's because like there's, we're in a certain transition period where, you know, the more, I mean, George Limbeck, the great Lutheran theologian once said, he said this like in the early eighties, he said, Christianity in America is in the odd position of no longer being established, but yet not yet quite being disestablished. And I, I wonder how much, the more we get disestablished, I mean, the more like the, the more, you know, the Christian church, whether it's Protestant or Catholic, in form in America gets disestablished, the more exotic and interesting it becomes because it becomes, it does, it, 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 it's seen as one path among many. Right. And, and, and one, and so it's kind of a, I think people are less defensive or alarmist about it. Right. Because that right. maybe. I, I think it's also probably true that, um, you're joining a religious community, giving up, like leaving a profession, when you're doing well at it and joining a religious community, it's, it's traumatic and it, it, it makes you vulnerable and telling people about it makes you vulnerable. So I think that's, people are often more sympathetic <laughs> when you're vulnerable. So it's, I think people think of Christianity as being something which is going to judge them, uh, make them vulnerable, put them on the defensive. And I think it helps if um, it seems like part of a real effort to be to live a more meaningful, full life. I think it comes off as more sympathetic somehow. Um, you say something in the book that I I, I circled on my iPad here because I, I started and I was I was I thought it was really prescient and insightful. You said we we tend to think of the objects of our desires as items in a restaurant buffet. Perhaps some of this, perhaps some of that. But our desires and, our, and their objects are more like rivers. They have a force and pressure all their own. Once we set it out on them, they pull us along in, in a particular direction, opening up possibilities to us that we did not expect or choose. This simple psychological fact is the reason why there is such a thing as education, why using our minds or learning to paint or losing weight requires not only discipline and social incentives, but also the guidance of wise elders who know what lies along certain pathways and who are willing to expose their own ignorance and uncertainty when guiding the young. It seems like, as I read through your book, it seems like that was a make it or break it insight for you in the sense of you you realize that you weren't master of your own destiny, right? Like that these things... They were pursuing, you know, they, they had a, you know, they were pursuing you in some ways, right? Like, right. No, and that and it happens, I think, both in in um, good ways and in bad ways. So when I, you know, set off for grad school as a, a 22-year-old, um, I didn't see ahead that I was going to become this prestige-obsessed person. I mean, there were seeds of it already there. Uh, people who, you know, it, it's not like you would have been totally shocked, but I wouldn't have known that that was going to be where I was in 10 years. Um, but I also, when I decided to become Catholic, you know, it was very relaxed and calm. I was like, well, I'd like a religion and this is what I'm going to do. And I had no idea that I was going to end up completely uprooting my life within a few years. So I, th- I think that kind of experience is really common and really important. Um, it's not that uh, actually my next, one of my next projects is about this. I wanted to write about it more directly that, we, we have this illusion of uh, control over our moral destinies. Um, and we have a little bit of, like morality is real and we have a little bit, we make choices, but we really exaggerate um, 
our, our capacity to foresee what making a particular choice means. And that means we really aren't in control of, of, of where we went up, where we end up in terms of our, our moral condition or our happiness or the meaning of our lives. It's interesting. You write a lot about leisure in the book. And I was talking with a friend last night who is remarking that like, cause, cause you talk about how the, the intellectual life requires leisure and how like, you know, neither the master class nor the worker class really has it. And I think, and this guy was remarking that like, you know, how so, so many people he knows right now are more busy under the, you know, shelter in place roles because, you know, now like they're working longer hours because their kids, you know, they're homeschooling their kids. And so they're staying up at midnight working and then they're expecting the, they're expecting the, you know, uh, the IT person or this consultant or that person to be available on all the hours they are. And so, Part of your thing is is the space that no one has the space, whether you're kind of working class or upper middle class. Very few people, the the, the rat race of late modern capitalism, right, really mitigates in in severe ways the the, the pursuit of of the, the kind of intellectual life you're talking about. No, I I think that 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 kind of leisure where you're you're free to think about something without an agenda without a necessarily an immediate deadline but you you can just let your ideas shape take shape however they're going to take shape so you're active you're not doing nothing but you're not under pressure to produce something um, and that's something that St. John's really prides itself on is is uh, this kind of conversation where it's driven by people's questions. It's open-ended. It's not the professor setting the agenda and, you know, you've mastered these bullet points and so you get your B+. You're, you're always on this open-ended, indefinitely extended um, activity of learning or in- inquiry. Um, and that you really, I think in our culture, you have to fight for it. Um, you, it's, there's really no one who has it give it to, given to them Um and uh, it, even when it is given to you, it's hard to use it. I mean, I know when I was first locked down in March here in Maryland, um, I actually did have a little more free time because my it was still spring break and then my students were writing essays. So I was kind of in, in a more relaxed mode. I couldn't think at all. I was completely overwhelmed by anxiety and fear and fascination of what was happening. You know, so I was just, you know, mainline. Yeah, that's a great phrase. Yeah. Anxiety, fear, and fascination. Cause <laughs> isn't that, because isn't it fascinating on the same, at the same time, like what, like I feel like a, a global pandemic, it's like a stress test for the culture. So it, it shows where the economic inequalities are. It shows where we're, what we're not thinking about. I mean, like, you look back at Bill Gates' TED talk from a few years ago, and he's like, "This is what's going to happen—an animal-based pandemic." <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, it, and no one's really. Yeah. I, I mean, it it does show so much about like just it, it's fascinating looking at like Taiwan had eight deaths. Yeah. <laughs> eight. <laughs> I mean, it's remarkable to think about. There is, a, it, despite the anxiety and fear, there is a fascination about it, like because it does it. It, it shows us how, how we deal with the with the unknown, right? And, and something so radically new, right? And that's, I mean, it is fascinating. Yeah. No, I, I agree. And you, you know, you see the the confident experts come out, and then a week later, those people, what they, whatever they were saying, has been shown to be garbage. And then you have like this theory and this theory. You have the eight people in Taiwan. You have this complete carnage in Milan and in New York. And, you know, you're trying to make sense of it and you can't like it's impossible to make sense of it. 
And you can't, it's also overwhelming because you're, when you're talking about the inequalities, I mean, you're confronting these moral issues, which are frankly overwhelming. I mean, you, you know, um, we, I still haven't read, I read a fair amount of news, but, or in magazines, I haven't, I still haven't read about enough about like what happened in prisons, what happened in nursing homes, where we had these people who were vulnerable, uh, who were just left to die like animals, you know. Uh, there was a story at NPR where a guy who owned a nursing home, was a wealthy guy, but but dipped into his own cash reserves to do this. Right. He just got a bunch of RVs, put all the workers, the nursing <gasps> people on top, oh, wow. and, and had restaurants deliver food to them, you know, and so they didn't leave and they haven't had one infection. Isn't that amazing? See, like stories like that are great. I, I missed that one. I, I only got this vague glimpse of these horror stories where the people who worked in these places rightly were afraid to even step in the door. Uh, so you don't even know the kind of neglect. Um, and it, these are not people who have natural voices in the in the media. So it's it's hard to find out what really happened. Uh, so but so, you know, you see something like that and you, you know, if you're, you're like me, you want to feel it, but you can't. It's too overwhelming. There's too much of it. And you're too uncertain about yourself. And then there's all the economic fallout. And that causes, I think, almost everyone these days, personal anxiety. I mean, a lot of our livelihoods are under threat. Um, certainly academics are facing a, something monstrous. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to concentrate. I mean, I think it's a learning experience. You can learn a lot, but it's not leisure. Um, it's, it's like being hit in the face. <laughs> you could, you could have, you, it might be a learning experience, but it, it, you know, it's not, um, it's, it's not a peaceful one. Yeah. And part of what leisure does, right. I mean, this is, I think I have a friend who was really ragging on, uh, he's ragging epidemiologists and academic scientists and he thinks everything is about applied science. I'm like, well, no, I mean discovery. I mean, like what leisure gives us is discovery, right? Like things that we're studying, like we don't know what we're going to find. We build super colliders, right. And, 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 and throw together, you know, uh, particles to try to simulate what might've started. We have no idea what we'll learn from that. Right. Like, but it's, but it's kind of thing where like that will probably, I mean, you, you think of all the things that pure discovery has led to in life, right. When we detach the intellectual life from pressure, from the pragmatic pressure to produce uh, th- there's a freedom that that sees things, right? Like you, like you see different things, right? You're looking for different things. Like you miss, you know, like you you miss different, you know. If everything is a hammer, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? Right, right. So, so when you have the kind of leisure space you're talking about to reflect in a, in a, in a non-pressured way, all of a sudden the tools seem to just multiply themselves, right? On the tool, like because you're not as pressured. No, and it's not. I mean, um, you know, I'm my background's in classics and philosophy, but at St. Thomas we read a lot of of uh, original texts in math and science, and that's it's how this, the the great scientists worked. I mean, they Newton didn't sit down to try to figure out how to get to the moon. He was doing theoretical astronomy, um, and that's how he discovered gravity. Blah 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 blah. Uh, and Leibniz was a mathematician and just worked out some stuff and then figured out it could work for nature. So there's, there's this, um, this broad speculative capacity in human beings where with left with nothing to do, we can find a lot to think about and learn a lot just by thinking. Um, and I feel that we've lost a bit of touch with that because, and partly maybe it's because of technology, because we, um, you know, we think that learning has to be somehow mediated, like we need all these tools to do it, uh, and they can help, but, uh, you have to think of what people did with nothing, you know, uh, 
it's incredible. Um, yeah, and one of, one of the things I think about a lot is our, like we know more exponentially more about the world than Aristotle did. We've got better microscopes. We know more of this, and yet we are exponentially more alienated in the world than he was. Right, like somebody like him that was thinking of theories of everything, right, right. and connecting. He was equally concerned about math and rhetoric and and personal ethics and political science and and these things. When he says things like political science is the highest of of, of sciences because we're rational animals that can co- seek our good and we're seeking collective good, that just seems mind blowing that that you can have that in much of an integrated view of reality, which seems to me in an age of specialization and pragmatism that we are completely disconnected from that. I think that's right. And I and I, I don't want to disparage um, the benefits of specialization. I mean, specialization does amazing stuff, you know, and, and, and we need it right now. We need virologists, you know, uh, we don't need, you know, probably probably someone with a broad-minded big picture view is not going to be as helpful as someone who's really put in their time with viruses. Um, but I do think it does, uh, we lose touch with um, basic human questions. Uh, and the ones I'm interested are in are what are sometimes called the eternal questions. You know, what, what kind of thing is a human being and is there a God and, you know, is there good? Um, uh, what's, what's the nature of the universe? Uh, has it always existed? Um, how did it come to be the way that it is? What's the source of order in nature? Blah, blah, blah. Uh, what's a law in nature? Those kinds of questions, I think, are 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 my the nearest to my heart. But I I think that um, scientists too can get disconnected, or any kind of uh, researcher can get disconnected from uh, things that human beings care about that matter to them. Um, and that's partly too because of the way that um, the money in academia works. So a lot of uh, researchers are funded by the outside. So they get funded for certain kinds of agendas and certain kinds of projects. And they're not left free to just think about what might be useful to them and their communities or what might be interesting to them and their communities. And I, I think that's one of the things I'd really like to see us recover. We academics out of this crisis is um, recover a sense of uh, immediacy that what we study matters, even when it's useless, like the stuff I study, um, it really makes it, it matters for ordinary people. Um, yeah, well, yeah. And it matters in the sense, right? Like, as we think about like everything I, I've read has led me to the conclusion that we're not going to get a, an, a, a, a vaccine anytime soon, if ever, there's been no successful Corona vaccines, right? The, our fastest ever was the mumps four years. And I think that, so we have and the and the virus vulnerability rate. I mean, like it, it does radically change for older people. Although there are younger, I mean, you got better odds if you're under sixty. And yet we've read tons of stories of people that still are dying. You know, in their twenties and thirties, and and now there's children being infected. And I think we need to think about a new normal and how we share risks and how we value human life and what like how do you value the economy versus the dignity of every human life and 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 and, and how you weigh risks for individuals and society? How much do we weight things on personal responsibility? How much do we think together? Because we, we are, I mean, I think something the pandemic tells us is we are more interconnected, right? Than, than we often think. And, and these are the questions that like, they don't, you know, there's not a something in the US code, right? There's not some public policy person that can tell us the answer to all these, right? They could like, they can tell us what some of our policy options are, 
But our but policy options aren't philosophical positions or statements of ultimate concern or value, right? And that that's what we need right now. More maybe more than anything, because we're going to be in this new normal, living with a virus that by all and by all signs looks like. I mean, South Korea sold just shut down again, and they were one of the best yeah. early in the world, and they've had to close down the whole metro cell area again because it resurged with a vengeance. Well, I also think that a lot of what, I mean, connecting to what you're saying is a lot of what I would like to see, I don't know if I'll see it or not, but uh, we have a love of algorithms. We want us, we want sort of someone to come up with an app that tells us the safest possible way to behave in every circumstance to minimize infection. Now, and it's just not there. It's got to be worked out. And I think it's got to be worked out locally, honestly, like who with the people that you're going to breathe with, you know, <laughs> like you got to get together with the people you're going to breathe with and figure out something that's going to work. You know, uh, I mean, you know, teaching in college, of course, what we're all thinking about is are we going to go online or not? I hate online learning. You know, I mean, we, we learned some stuff. It was fine, but I would love to be in person. But then, you know, I talked to my colleagues and I find I realized, well, you can't really ask someone who's. Uh, got 10 trillion health risks to go stand in front of a classroom with, with 20 people and 10, 20 kids who have not been taking care of themselves in it. So, it, you know, you, it's, it, it's really local and it, and it, and I hope it's worked out with some common sense and some conversation among, uh, yeah, the people that breathe together. Uh, it's interesting you talk about the algorithm thing. Cause I, one of the things I appreciate about Aristotle is his, his insistence that like rhetoric is no less of a science just because it doesn't have mathematics the right. precision of mathematics, like you need different levels of precision for different academic inquiries, for different critical inquiries. Right. And I think, so I remember early on, they were asking Fochi, well, your, your model was 30% off. But I'm thinking, but then it was 70% right, <laughs> which is pretty good. You know, and this is, like this is the thing that, that, that strikes me again is why we need some of the d deeper intellectual life where you have realistic expectations because you know the human finitude you know that things are different like studying math isn't quite the same as studying um social psychology or things yeah, like that yeah. but they're both critical inquiries we can study them and use the best of our of our minds to cut to see the truth we can find there but i think you're right. i think people have this sort of you're right like this algorithmic person well netflix can tell me what i like so why can't <laughs> I, so why can't uh, an epidemiologist just tell me exactly where the virus is going to be. And so people get, I, I think people get so frustrated that, that, Oh, did we shut down too much or the models were this or that? Well, I mean, we, you're right. We're working on the fly and, and we're going to take risks and we're going to get it wrong. Uh, and, and that, I mean, more than anything, right. What we need to understand is the, is the enduring nature of the human condition where that's always going to be the case. Right. No, I think that's right. I think it is one of the things that studying, especially studying a variety of topics, like a broad education teaches you is it's it's not that math is real and philosophy is BS. It's that math has one kind of precision. Philosophy has another kind of precision. Literature has another kind of precision. History has a different kind. And there's forms of knowledge that have to be treated differently. And part of becoming part of what a good education does is it gives you the judgment, which is an inbuilt habit. You know, it's not something you can get an app to do. Um, it's, it's like, I think it's really just a human capacity uh, and it needs to be cultivated. It doesn't happen automatically, but to judge what kind of inquiry, what kind of knowledge is available to you in different circumstances. 
uh, I think that's crucial. Uh, and I, I do think we, we, we're we expecting everything uh, not just to be as pers- as it's it's not quite that we want to assimilate everything to math and science because we want math and science to do things that they actually can't do. Uh, we want something like total certainty, and uh, I don't think those 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 uh, forms of inquiry have ever been uh, really about that. Um, so it's it, anyway, I, it's it, it's true. Um, education is good; for, it should help us in this kind of situation, um, and help us to. I guess I could say this too: it'll help. It, it should help us take responsibility for for what we decide to do um, in a way that I think the other thing that we see, I think, in these circumstances is uh, how bureaucratic everything is, right? So, you know, the, the, the CDC's like, you know, going through its rusty wheels, you know, and doing kind of dumb, you know, it's got to, it should be moving quickly, you know. So you've got all this bureaucracy and then you've got people that have really gotten accustomed to living under it and, no one in a bureaucracy has any responsibility. You know, the, the the people who live under it don't, and the people who run it don't. And that's, I think, really the challenge of right now is to find a way to be adults uh, and make choices that have consequences and accept them and do the best we can. Yeah, because I think what you, what you seem to be getting at here is that like, if if our way of life is built on the consent of the governed. If we look to the bureaucracies or to cable news to tell us, you know, there's no sense that we can get a cons- like at some point we're going to have to get a lot of information out in the public. And you're right, people like you're saying, a lot of it's going to be local. You'll have to make decisions, and we can encourage best practices and things like this. And I think you know we can say, look, you know, these certain things are just really toxic. We can't do them. But by and large, I think it's going to be uh, us developing a consent. Of the government. I mean, one of the things I think, like, you know, as I look at these riots that are tearing apart, you know, certain parts of urban America, and I was thinking, gosh, you know, some of this is like, how much of this is just African Americans saying, look, I, 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 I have no consent of the government in the system. No, that's right. You know, the, the, the system, there's no, and so like, when people are like, why are they so apathetic about the community? Because I don't feel like I have a, a, a community because there's no consent of the government, you know, and 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 the treatment of uh, uh you know of African Americans by certain extensions of law enforcement show that, and you kind of and when that when that erodes, like in in a free society, you do get pretty nihilistic pretty quickly. I think that's right. It also, again, the you know the the black community suffered massively disproportionately in all of this. And where's the real investigation as to why? Uh, you know, have we have we thought about um, why that is, and are we making moves to try to correct for it? Um, have we done that kind of work, or are we just kind of oh well, who knows why? Um, a huge percentage of the people that are dying are are black or people of color or people who are working in these uh, at risk situations. So it, there's a sense that decisions are being made that w- are arbitrary as far as your well-being is concerned. Uh, and that's the background against which then this, you know, policeman murders somebody. Uh, <laughs> like, Yeah, you feel like you have no stake and no one's protecting you uh, and no one cares about your well-being. That's that's a very, very bad uh, situation. And I think I, I, I don't know. I, I don't want to. I have a bad tendency to get too speculative about stuff I don't really know about, but I feel like there's a lot of that right now. I feel like a lot of people are alienated. Uh, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. But I guess I can look at the news, and that's maybe that's good enough evidence. Uh, it's a it's a lot it's a lot of protesting. It's not just a little. You mentioned you have a great 
couple pages on Malcolm X and how Malcolm X, he goes to prison and it becomes a kind of aesthetic journey for him. And he reads everything. He learns some basic Latin and Greek. He's reading classical philosophy. He's reading everything. I mean, he's just, and then he, you know, later when he gets out, he, he has this, you know, he has this pilgrimage to Mecca where he, it challenges some of his black nationalism because he sees men and women from all over the world. And, and you say like he lived between these two changes of mind, which I found very moving because I think it's so hard for most of us to change our mind like on anything, right? Like on major things, right? We, it's so hard for us to interrogate our priors, our presuppositions, right? But here, I mean, it, it's interesting that the cultural moment we're in, it seems like a massive I- invitation for us to investigate our priors, right? No, it's not, and I, I think that one of the reasons why I thought he was such an interesting case, I mean, I, I you know, I fell in love with the autobiography when I was a teenager. I've just never gotten over it. It's just one of my favorite books. And I think he's an incredible figure and maybe not as well known as he should be among uh, uh, white Americans anyway. Um, but I think it's that he, on the one hand, he's an activist. He's famous for politics. He's famous for sticking out a certain kind of political position, but he, he is who he is because he has this intense love of truth um, and this intense inwardness. Otherwise, he's not going to eat up the prison library and become a different person. And otherwise, he's not going to see in Mecca what he did see, which is that, you know, oh my gosh, like uh, all human beings are brothers and sisters. Um, so it, it's, um, it, that's part of what asceticism, I think, is for, is to disconnect you from stuff that's going to keep you from seeing what's really true, even if it might be difficult. Because it's just the way we are. We just, we like to get along, you know, and it's, it's it, we don't, shouldn't be too hard on ourselves about it, but we should recognize that it's, it's not necessarily going to be the thing that gets us to the best things in life, uh, just to kind of get along without, with as little conflict as possible. <laughs> just I feel like how, how most of us live, and me most of the time too. You say, you talk about the asceticism of intellectual life. You say the asceticism of intellectual life is related to what we might call the asceticism of life in general. This cancer may or may not respond to treatment. A woodworker or engineer must accept the limitations of the materials, regardless of the grand vision he or she began with. There are some stains that just will not come out, no matter how important the garment is. The office can hire and fire as much as it likes, but in the end, only the people who work there can accomplish its tasks. The encounter with a given reality and the resultant crushing of our desires and hopes is an essential part of being a human being. Every mode of learning is a school of hard knocks. That, 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 that I mean, that that's so beautifully written and, and that just strikes me as so true, right? That this is, I mean, the, there's the power of the intellectual life because it opens up uh, a, a wider vision of reality to you. At the same time, it's, it's, there's a sort of, uh, there's Lewis Smedes was this Christian psychologist said he'd been married seven times in his life to the same woman. And he says it was all death and resurrections, right? Like, <laughs> you know, it would be empty nesters, newlyweds, then young children, then this, then teenage parents, empty nesters. And it's like, you have to let go of one to embrace the other. And that's, I think this, the, the, the path you're talking about, Ray, is one of death and resurrection. Right. Yeah. I, I hadn't, uh, I hadn't thought about it in terms of death and resurrection, and I, I, I have to stew over that for a second, but I'll, I'll say something while I'm stewing and see if something comes out of that. Um, one thing I think I was just thinking about recently, which I think is not as clear in the book as it might be, is one difference between the ordinary forms of asceticism 
asceticism of gardening or, you know, like just some stuff just won't grow where you live. You know, there's some weeds you just can't get rid of. You've got to live with them. Um, it's much more evident in manual labor, right? Uh, you, you, or in a variety of parts of life, the reality is right in front of your face. One of the things about intellectual life that makes it interesting to say it's ascetical is that you can actually, because language has this capacity to deceive and set up illusions, you can convince yourself of something that's complete garbage. Yeah, yeah. And so it requires this real discipline. This is why we have education, right? It requires a real discipline to be able to say, oh my gosh, this thing that I've thought for 20 years for which I've won 10 prizes and have had a raise and a beautiful salary and a prestigious job, it's complete garbage. <laughs> that's really yeah, hard. Yeah. Uh, that's really hard. So um, I think the um, it may be one of the reasons why there's a lot of suspicions of the intellect in religious circle, in Christian circles, religious circles, that the the death part is harder to see. It's, it's a, it's a realm of pride uh, rather than a realm of and and of illusion and deception, rather than a realm of uh, the cross, uh, you know, the, like the, the de- you know the the death limitation, the the end of human capacities, it's there, but you have to really fight for it, and you need discipline to see it. Yeah, and I, I think you know you talk a lot about Augustine in the book, and, and Augustine, you know, has this way of sort of uh, relativizing. The tumultuous natures, fortunes of the Roman Empire and the city of God. He's like we're on an ultimate pilgrimage, right? And so there's always the already and the not yet, and so you have to have this. And that's what it seems like you're calling for in the terms of asceticism. It's not like you're saying, okay, never eat a pepperoni pizza or 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 cabernet or something. It's like, but it's the it's the holding things loosely. Like there's there there requires a kind of. slight detachment if you're going to be able to attach to something new, right? And part of the ever-expansive kind of, I think, intellectual life you're talking about is is this openness to something, you know, to, to the good, the true, and the beautiful show, being shown to you in, in, in a real different way. So it takes like an open hand. I, I think that's beautifully put. I, um, so I it's not that somehow you should never... Um, binge watch Netflix or never read a bodice ripping romance or trashy science fiction or like never play video games or whatever. It's just, you, you have to know that there's something in you that's going, that, that could frenetically do nothing other than what you're doing at that moment. So these things have a kind of addictive capacity and they can shut you off from everything else. So you, you have to do them with a light touch so that you can pull away from them and do something else. And so that, you're not you're not shutting yourself off from reality breaking in on you which right, I think, right. and i think to do that it's it, it it's even if it requ- there's this famous thing pascal says right the hardest thing for a human being is to sit in an empty room uh, and i that that's how you that's where that openness that's what that openness feels like it can feel like restless boredom like nothing's going on uh, it can be uncomfortable but it, the the payoff is worth the worth the price um this, yeah, we we need we need more than just our senses being overloaded yeah yeah i, I yeah that, that i think that's right and, and for augustine it's interesting because and you you recount this like his you know 
how his mother, St. Monica, you know, she's, she's so worried and goes to the bishop and says, oh my gosh, my son's a heretic. And the bishop is so, is so, it takes such comfort in his furious pursuit of the truth. He's like, he's going to find it. Yeah, no, that's, I, I, I think that's so touchy. I, I feel like that's not, maybe I'm just crazy. I, I'm a, it's part of my nature to reinvent the wheel. So I, I, I discover for the first time things that everyone's already known for a long time. But I, I feel like that moment where he says, you know, you can, he'll, don't worry, he's going to, he's going to find his way by reading. Um, this is part of the confessions I think is not, not about enough. I mean, he, he, um, it's this years long course of reading and searching for truth that prepares him to receive these graces that of his conversion. Um, and, uh, there's something about that that's really crucial and, and yeah, worth, uh, um, worth imitating in some way, like the bishop's approach, like not to, not to freak out about stuff, but to say, well, you know, truth comes out. Um, if you're, if you're, if you're looking for it. It's interesting. You wrote a piece in first things, uh, which is kind of on the substance of, of your book. And you make an interesting point about Martha Nussbaum, who is one of these people who's a vociferous defender of the humanities, right? And just, you know, with a vengeance. And yet you, you, you kind of, you point out that she defends it ultimately for democratic citizenship and not the ultimate pursuit of the good and the true, the beautiful itself, like the, the good life itself. And so even then she's like, it sounds good, but then even then it gets reduced to this pragmatic thing, which uh, won't allow us to interrogate our, our personal conceptions of democratic citizenship, right? Like, again, in a pandemic, we might need to think through how do we relate to the, these things? Like that's, I mean, it's, it's, it, it strikes, it strikes me. You're saying like, you've got to be careful about instrumentalizing things, right? Right. No, it's extremely, um, dangerous. And of course I fall into it myself. I mean, one of the questions I got when I had a friend who read the, a draft of the book and said, well, aren't you just saying that intellectual life is instrumental for dignity? And I was like, oh no, no, I can't be instrumental. It's got to be for its own sake. And so, I mean, I guess what for its own sake really means is that it's for our growth and development as such, right? It's for, for human beings, uh, in some way taken apart from their circumstances. And, and as I think about it, one of, the, one of the problems with a view like Nussbaum's um, is that uh, suppose that your democratic citizenship is not possible for you. I mean, say that you're Primo Levi living under Mussolini. Um, you don't have the option of democratic citizenship, but you're studying chemistry and that matters to you because it's true and everything else you're hearing is lies. So, or, you know, say you're like a, you know, you're a, a, a prisoner in Siberia or, or you're Malcolm X in the prison in the U.S. You, you don't have the options of democratic citizenship, but, but intellectual life matters in those circumstances in a way more than ever. Um, and uh, so we, I want us to try to recover, especially since we're heading into tough times, which I didn't know quite how dramatic it would be in the book when I wrote the book, but now it's obvious. Um, we, we have to, to cultivate ways of being in the world that are going to endure really tough circumstances. Yeah. Uh, even the, the loss of all kinds of things that we care about. Um, and uh, it's one of the problems with instrumentalizing. So uh, it's not just theoretical problem. It's a, it's a practical problem. If, if, you know, if, if you, you could, you could have fascinating work being an engineer, um, you know, it's instrumental use of the intellect, but it could be really interesting. It could be really absorbing, but you lose that job as an engineer or that, kind of engineering dries up and you have to find something to do with yourself. Uh, and what is it going to be? Uh, it can't be engineering anymore. I mean, I, I also think that the, the instrumentalism, right. 
doesn't it ultimately in late modernity kind of sever the good, the true, and the beautiful? I mean, this is some of the great Catholic thinker von Balthasar's project, right? Where he thinks this is, if we're going to make it through the modern world in a healing integrated way, it's reconnecting the good, the true and the beautiful. Right. And that, that almost, I mean, that relationship is almost just permanently severed in late modernity. So I guess, you know, it's funny. I talk very little about the true, the good and the beautiful in my writing about this stuff. Uh, But I'm definitely in the same camp with people that talk about it, but there is a reason why I don't. Um, And that is that I think sometimes when we talk about that, we talk as if we already know what it is. Right. Uh, Whereas they're they're somehow the objects of search. uh, Mm -hmm. And the search can look pretty different for different people. So I I think that's why I've tried to shake things up and use a variety of examples from different contexts so that that it doesn't sound like – I mean, you know, I'm a – believing Catholic. So I have my own views about what the true and the good and the beautiful are and how the structure works. But I don't think that, um, I think you can search for those things. You're not required to have a theory in advance, you know? Right, right. This is like what Hegel said, right? The owl of Minerva spreads its wings only with the falling of dusk, right? So we, we only generally see those things in retrospect, right? Like it's through the, it's looking back on where you've been in the journey, not looking predictively, no, I think that's right. So, you know, if if you'd said to me when I was 17, which is kind of at the outset of my interest in philosophy and, and studying, if you'd said to me, oh, yeah, you must really care about the true, the good, and the beautiful, I'd be like, what are you talking about? I don't know what the true, the good, or the beautiful are, you know. Um, all I know is <laughs> I want to understand some stuff. <laughs> so, like, give me these books that are – get me into this activity of conversation and reading where – I'm confronting these questions. Because as children, it's pretty exhilarating. As children, why does, why does this happen? Why does this happen? Why do cows live here? Why do, you know, there's something exhilarating in childhood that we lose. You know, G.K. Chesterton talks about like the difference between a four-year-old and a 14-year-old at the zoo, right? At four-year-old, you're just full of wonder because you don't know there should be cheetahs. <laughs> and elephants, right? Whereas, That's but, you know, like, whereas there's something enchanting about the world. That and, and what you're talking about in the intellectual endeavor, when you when you see, it's like seeing the matrix or whatever. You know, you kind of you see the glow, you see the you see the rhythm and the flow, and, and that becomes really um, one of the climactic human experiences you can have. No, and I, I, there's something. I mean, I'm not going to get this right because it's too amorphous a thought for me right now. But there's actually something important about starting from a place that's less clear. And where you're, where you're, you're following after something you don't quite know what. I don't know why it's important. I don't know why it shouldn't work just fine for someone who's found their way to tell you exactly where you're going and why. But it doesn't, it doesn't work for whatever reason. I think it's really important for us to make our own ways through the cloudy depths. And yeah. Find what we're going to find. Um, and I think then it's that's how we actually are convinced of things. You know, it's because we've done that ourselves. Um, and no one's imposed it on us. Sina, you've written a, a great, a great book. Uh, it's fantastic. Thank you. Thank and you. for anybody that wants to get lost in thought, I'd say uh, and find the hidden pleasures of intellectual life. I think your book is a great place to start. Oh, thank you so much. It's great talking. Yeah, thanks for writing it. Thanks for spending some time. Oh, fabulous! Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. If you like what you've heard here, please do a few things for me. Go share about this episode in iTunes. Write a review. Give it a rating. Share the love and goodness. Or go on social media. Share a link to the episode 
on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Please pass along the love and goodness if you've experienced it here. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Give and Take. And until next time, friends, fare thee well. <laughs>